0: Is here at Grace Church this morning as we're continuing in a series uh, that we started several weeks ago now that we've been calling This is Grace. And if you're just jumping in, uh, real simple, what we've been talking about and investigating for this uh, six-week series together is the topic of grace. And the reason that we've been doing that, quite frankly, is because here at Grace Church, we believe that grace is very, very important. Um, not only is grace the name of our church, right? We're Grace Church, uh, but grace is also kind of the core message uh, the central message that we focus in on, it is our heartbeat um, here at Grace Church. And grace is really the thing that we believe that everyone in the room needs an experience with. And that, uh, that an experience with, that an engagement with grace has the power to utterly transform everyone's lives. And so because of that, we've been taking this series to kind of investigate and talk about this topic of grace. The big idea, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, quite simply has been this, been unpacking it. Is, uh, is this idea that grace is not just a concept to be understood uh, but it is a reality to be experienced is so the big idea in this series kind of our thesis statement that we've been that's been guiding us through this whole series is this idea that grace is not just a concept to be understood it's a reality to be experienced. That is to say, you guys all know this just as well as I do, that there's some things in life that that simply having a knowledge about that thing doesn't go nearly far enough to explain the experience of that thing, right? You can know about children, it's a totally different experience to to have children, right? You can know about marriage, completely different experience to be married. And we say, man, grace is like that. That's what grace is like. Uh, It's not just some concept. It's not just some abstract theoretical thing. Um, It is a reality That is to be experienced. And so, the real question then that we've been asking in this series is not do you know what grace is, right? Uh, Because the truth is that for even some, some of us in this room, you may have grown up in church and you might have an answer to that question, but the real question is have you experienced grace? Right. Has it has it crashed into your life? Have you embraced it in some way? And so that's what we've been uh, talking about uh, throughout this series. Now, because of that, because we're saying that grace is a con- is not a concept to be understood, but a reality to be experienced. What we've been doing then is rather than giving you know definitions of grace and explanations of grace, instead we've been looking at six indications that you've experienced grace. So each week we're looking at a different indication and basically we're asking you to assess, man, have you experienced grace? Have you had an experience? And these indications will kind of help you assess that, right? Have I experienced grace? And so for the past weeks, if you guys have been here, past four weeks, we've looked at four different indications. The first indication we said is is this, you've experienced grace when you're disturbed by grace. Uh, The second indication we said is this, you've experienced grace when you're devastated by sin. Uh, last uh, two weeks ago, we said you experience grace uh, when you become disinterested in fairness. And then last week, we said that you've experienced grace when you're driven by grace. And let me just say, by the way, that if you've missed any of those previous conversations, I would highly encourage you to go to our website. You can either download those videos, or you can subscribe to the podcast, and you can check out those four messages from the past. I'd encourage you to do that, because I think today's message is going to make a lot more sense in the context of the broader conversation. But today, what we want to do, with the remainder of our time, is we want to look at the fifth indication that you've experienced grace, the fifth indication. And quite simply, here's where we're going to be going today. You know you've experienced grace when you be devoted to hospitality. Okay, when you become devoted to hospitality. Now, some of you are like, now what in the world are you talking about when you say that? Well, let me explain myself a little bit. If you have your Bibles, if you would just take them with me for a moment. If you go to Luke chapter 7, that's where we're going to be parking ourselves for this morning. So Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be headed. And uh, let me just say also that if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's absolutely no problem. We have some for you uh, in the chair backs in front of you. You can grab those. And uh, in those Bibles that we've provided, page 721 is where you're going to find Luke chapter 7. And so you can go ahead and flip there. And I also should mention, too, that if you're a guest with us this morning and you don't own a Bible, like if you just flat out don't have one, just keep one of ours. Right? Make it a gift from us to you. We want you to have a Bible. We think it's real important that you do. And so Luke chapter 7. Um, so over the years, over the past probably 20 years, um, there has been a social experiment that's been done Um, in many different places and at many different times. And uh, this social experiment is a real simple one. But basically, the reason they do this social experiment is to prove something that they call in-group bias, okay? And the experiment, basically what they do, it's to demonstrate how quickly we as humans naturally gravitate towards an in-group and out-group mentality. Now some of you are like, what does that mean? So let me tell you about the experiment, I think it'll make sense. So the experiment goes something like this. And like I said, they've done it in many different times in many different places, but it's a real basic experiment. A teacher will get up in front of a classroom and will divide the classroom into two parts. Okay, so on one half of the classroom, they'll have all of those who are wearing tennis shoes go to one side of the classroom. On the other side of the classroom, they'll have everyone else that's wearing any other footwear besides tennis shoes. Right? And here's the experiment, real simple. The teacher will have them kind of circle up in a circle, and then he'll, he'll, uh, he or she, the teacher, will have them make a list And in that list, they have to divide into two categories, positive and negative, and they have 10 minutes in their circles to come up with every reason that they can think of why that other group is not wearing the type of shoes that they are. Real, real simple social experiment. And so they do this. Now, like I said, they've done this many times in many ways, but what they found is that the results to this social experiment are consistent. And what they found is is that in a 10-minute period, that on average, um, the people that do this experiment come up with, on average in 10 minutes, 20 reasons. And of those 20 reasons, what's so fascinating is they found that on average, two-thirds or more of the reasons that the group comes up with, why the other group is not wearing the shoes that they are, are negative or derogatory. Right? And so, so each representative from the group gets up in front of the class and they have to tell why they think the other people aren't wearing the shoes. And the reasons are like this. They're like, well, the, the reason they're not wearing the shoes that we're wearing is because they don't have the same fashion sense that we do, right? We're way more fashionable. Or they'll say, they don't have as much money as we do. And so that's why we're wearing the shoes that we are and they're not wearing the shoes. Or, the, or they'll say things like, they're lazy. They're just lazy, like they don't want to tie their shoes or something, right? And I understand that, because that's me, I'm lazy, I don't like to tie my shoes. But they come up with these derogatory, kind of these negative um, reasons. Now, the reason they do this social experiment is because they're trying to demonstrate how quickly, 10 minutes, and how easily, over 10 shoes, right, people naturally gravitate towards an in-group, right, those who are like me, and an out-group, those who are not like me, mentality, how they naturally kind of gravitate, and not only how quickly we gravitate towards that mentality, but how often our in-group claims superiority over the out-group, right? This is in-group versus out-group thinking, or I like to think of it this way. I'm sure you guys have probably thought of it this way too. It's us versus them, right? It is us versus them. Now, we don't need a social experiment to tell us what we already know, that human nature just, just at our very core, we naturally gravitate towards an us versus them mentality. We, we don't need a, a social experiment, we can just look at history, right? And when you look back through the history books and you see every major conflict, every war, every tension that we faced in humanity is centered around an us versus them mentality. And as we've seen in this experiment, right, we tend to gravitate and polarize to these extremes for any and every reason, right? In our culture today, um, there's a ton of reasons that we do this. Some of the big ones, obviously political affiliation is a big one, right? Us versus them, Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, right? Us versus them. We see that happen with uh, political affiliation. We see that happen with socioeconomic standing. And so it's us versus them. It's um, us who live in this zip code versus them who live in that zip code. It's us who drive these type of cars versus them who drive these type of cars. It's us who make this amount of income versus those who make this amount of income. Obviously this happens with religion. It's us who believe this versus them who believe this. And you hear it sometimes in the way that we talk with our in-group is we tend to speak negatively or derogatorily um, against those other groups that would be considered the out-group, right? We see this with nationalism right it's us americans versus them you know not americans and that's like the rest of the world not american right and uh, and it becomes like this this us versus them mentality, and we'll divide over these things. Race is obviously a big one. If you guys have been following the news this week, we see very, very real demonstrations of that in many ways in our culture right now, where race is us versus them, and we see it in a lot of different ways. And it's not just the big things. It's not just religion, and it's not just politics, and it's not just belief systems. It's also the small things, like what type of phone you use, right? It's iPod or, you know, iPhone versus the Android type of thing. It's what kind of food you eat. Organic versus... Whatever the opposite of organic is, I don't even know what that is, artificial, I don't know, you know, synthetic food, I don't. who's eating oil, you know, so that kind of thing. Um, we, we do this with, with everything, the, the type of clothing line that we wear, it becomes us versus them. All right, now the reason I bring that up um, is because, for two reasons, one is, first I want to ask you kind of a, an authentic question, and I want you to be honest with yourself, and this is not the easiest question to answer, but I want you to look into your own heart just for a moment this morning, all right? And I want you to take a review. And over the course of the, the conversation that we're going to have today, I want you to be thinking about these questions. Okay, here's a question that I want you to ask yourself. And I want you to really be honest, because here's the tricky thing about this conversation, is we have a, a very uh, a, a proclivity to seeing this easily in other people and not really seeing it in ourselves very well. It's hard to see this in the mirror. Now here's the questions I want you to ask. The first question I want you to ask, quite simply, is who is your us? Who is that for you, right? Who is, who is your in-group, the group of people that you most identify with? Is it a political group? Is it a religious group? Maybe for those of us who follow Jesus, it's, it's the Christian thing, right? What is your in-group? What is, your in group? What is the, the group of people you most identify with? The second question related to that is, who is your out-group, right? Who are the thems to you? You know, them. Who are them? Them liberals, them conservatives, right? Um, them poor people them rich people. Who, who are the most pronounced thems in your heart, in your mind? Who are the thems? Okay. And then here, here's, here's the last question. This is probably the hardest one. I want you to be honest with yourself though. Where in your heart do you see tension? Do you see um, um, apprehension? Where in your heart do you see a resistance, even a prejudice, or a stereotype against the thems? Where does that exist in your heart? Now, you might not be able to identify it right away, but I believe that if you're willing to look hard enough that you'll be able to find it. I think it's something, and, 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 and like I'm going to talk about in this sermon, I think that's a very natural thing. We've seen it throughout history. We've seen it throughout time. I believe it's a very natural thing. I don't think it's a good thing, but I think it's a natural thing that occurs. It's part of human nature, right? This is Lord of the Flies type of stuff that we see. And, and, and here's the real thing that I want to talk about. The reason I want to bring that up is because I believe that one of the ways that you know you've experienced grace is it begins, to, it begins to change the way that you view outsiders. It begins to change the way that you view the outgroup. It begins to change the way that you view the thems. And you start to move away from an us versus them mentality and you start moving towards a hospitality mentality. And you're like, what, what exactly are you talking about with that? Well, that's where Luke 7 is going to come in. So let's go to our Bibles. We're going to start in Luke chapter 7. We're actually going to start in verse 36. But before I jump in there, Let me give you just a little bit of background so you know what's going on in this passage. So basically, Luke chapter 7, Jesus has been doing his ministry now for a while. Um, He's been healing. He's been uh, performing miracles. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. And as he's been doing this, he's been gaining a lot of influence and a lot of attention. And we're told that the attention and the popularity that Jesus Christ is drawing by the time we get to Luke chapter 7 is very controversial. And so Jesus is, is the controversial topic of his time. Right? Um, there, there are opinion polls all over the place about this guy. So, so some people think Jesus is awesome. Some people think he's terrible. Some people think he's from God. Some people think he's from Satan. And everyone is divided on the topic of Jesus. And that's kind of where we're going to pick it up. We're going to see that there's a lot, of, a lot of mixed opinions about Jesus. Now, one of the reasons that um, the people were so divided about their opinions about Christ in this time is one of the reasons is because Jesus didn't uh, fit neatly into any category. He didn't fit neatly into any category. He was a Jewish religious teacher, right? So he was a rabbi, and yet he would hang out with the sinners and the tax collectors, the outcasts of society, those people, which no self-respecting Jewish teacher would do. But he would do that. And he was, a, he was a Jewish rabbi who would hang out with sinners and tax collectors. He would hang out with the sinners and tax collectors, and even though he would be with them, he wouldn't indulge in their activities. So he didn't fit into any category neatly. And so because of that, no one knew what to do with them. No one to do with the guy. So I want you to see what happens here in verse 36. One of the Pharisees, who is a religious leader, invites Jesus over for dinner. And something crazy happens at this dinner. So let's just watch this. So verse 36, says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. All right, so let's just pause there for a second and get our minds around this. So the Pharisee invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, why would a Pharisee, And if you guys know anything about Pharisees, these guys really didn't like Jesus all that much, right? One of the major things they had against Jesus was that he would hang out with people that they didn't hang out with, right? If you were one of us, you don't hang out with them, and Jesus hangs out with them, so he can't be one of us. That was kind of their mentality. And so this Pharisee invites Jesus over there. Now, why would he invite him over? We don't really know. But we can speculate, and what I speculate is it's probably the Pharisees inviting Jesus over to do some fact-finding, He's trying to investigate. He's trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is and what category he fits in. In other words, this Pharisee is trying to figure out, is he one of us or not? Or is he not one of us? And so he invites him over for dinner. And I want you to notice there, it says that when the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner, Jesus went to his house. So Jesus is like, sure, I'll go to your house. Right? We tend to get this picture that Jesus was like, I hate Pharisees. Not at all, man. Jesus was going over to dinner at the Pharisee's house on several occasions in the Bible. The Pharisee is like, hey, you want to come over to my house? He's like, Sure. Come over to your house for dinner. Sounds good, man, right? Comes to his house. The Bible says when he gets there, he reclines at the table. Isn't that interesting? He reclines at the table. That's weird. I don't know if I've ever reclined at a dinner table before. So what's that all about? Well, you have to remember, this is a different culture, right? And so in our culture, we have high tables with high chairs. That's not the way it worked in this culture. They had low tables. Their tables were very, very low. And the way that it would work in this culture is they would have it in the middle of the room. And when you went into the room to eat dinner and you would recline at the table, you would lay down on your left hand, you would recline on your left hand because your left hand was considered somewhat unclean, you didn't handle things with your left hand, you would eat with your right hand and your feet, you would put as far away from the table as possible. The reason you would do that, quite frankly, it's because feet are nasty, right? And you don't want your feet near your food. And especially back in this time, there was animals and there was sand and you walked everywhere. And so when you sat down to eat food, and especially with religious leaders who were all like, you know, they, they, were, they put a lot of emphasis on cleanliness. You would put your feet, your stinky, nasty feet, away from the table, as far away as possible. You'd lean on your left hand and you would eat with your right hand and you would recline and you would talk. It's kind of the table setting as you would see. Now, let me mention one other thing. Before we move on, another cultural fact that I think is going to be helpful to this story. Another thing that we know about this time, historians tell us, is that they had um, no social media, they had no, you know, news or none of those type of things. And so life was very public back then. And so whenever you had two influential people getting together to have dinner, it was very, very, very normal to have a group of spectators who would have been uh, kind of hovering around the scene. So I want you to imagine, this is kind of how it's working. Jesus is reclining at the table, right? His feet are away from the table. He's hanging out with this Pharisee and all around the walls in the parameter of this room, there would have been onlookers who were just there to listen in. That would have been completely socially acceptable at this time, all right? So that's the picture we have in mind. So they have dinner, watch what happens next. In the middle of this dinner party, Verse 37, it says a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to weep to, to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them. And then she poured the perfume on them. All right, so the Bible says in the middle of this dinner party, Jesus is with his Pharisee, all of a sudden this woman breaks in. And we don't really know much about this woman. The only thing the Bible tells us is that she was a sinful woman, which meant she had a checkered past. She had a tainted reputation, right? She was known for her immorality. The Bible says she comes in, she breaks into this setting and she goes right to Jesus's feet. She's crying, right? And so she begins using her tears and she wets Jesus's feet and then she uses her hair and she starts wiping his feet with her hair. And then the Bible says she's got this bottle, this alabaster bottle of perfume and she pours it on his feet and starts walking. And she's crying and she's kissing his feet as she does this. Now, now you guys just have to understand, this is awkward for us. This was awkward for them. Right? This was just awkward. For this woman to come in, it would have been awkward for everyone in the room. Because first off, you don't do that. right? And, and, and secondly, this woman was a sinful woman. She had a, a checkered past. She was an immoral woman. And now she barges into the house of a Pharisee? Someone who has no relations with a person of that class, right? And she comes in and she starts weeping and she starts pouring this stuff. And this would have been awkward for her too, right? To get in front of all these people and to do something like that. That would have been awkward for her. But not only would have been awkward, it would have been costly. See, archaeologists tell us that that alabaster jar that she had of perfume probably would have been a very expensive bottle of perfume. Most likely, it would have cost one year's wage, I don't know if any of you ladies have perfume like that, right? One year's wage. So she comes in, she starts pouring on his feet, wiping, wiping his feet, kissing his feet and those type of things. This would have been awkward for her. But the other thing about this that's interesting, many people believe, or this woman, we don't know for sure, but many people believe that she was a prostitute. And the reason they believe that is because of the perfume. And as you guys can imagine, being in that trade, that having that occupation of being a prostitute, it would require that you dress a certain way, that you smell a certain way. And many people would believe that that perfume was part of her industry. And so for her to come in to do that, I just want you to think, that, that would have put Jesus' reputation on the line. The people would have watched her crying, kissing Jesus' feet, touching him, and they would have thought, well, apparently she knows him. I don't know what that means about Jesus, but they know each other. She's got this really expensive perfume she's pouring on his feet, and it, it would have caused people to think in a different way, maybe, about Jesus. It would have put his reputation on the line. In fact, we see that. I want you to notice what happens next. Watch the Pharisee's response in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so in other words, he thought to himself, right, in his mind, as he saw this, what was he thinking? The Bible tells us. Here's what he thought. If this man were a prophet, he would, that is, if he was from God, if this man was from God, if he was a prophet, he would know who it, who it is that's touching him and what kind of woman she is. But she is a sinner. Now, I want you guys to notice the Pharisees' um, assessment of the situation because this is fascinating. And it gives us some insight into his belief system. He looks at Jesus and he says to him, well, he can't be from God. That's over. Because if he was from God, if he was associated with God like us, the Pharisees, he would know that we don't deal with them. He would know what kind of woman she is and he wouldn't be letting her touch him. He would know better, right? If he was one of us, he wouldn't be talking to them. He wouldn't be with her if that was the case. And so he makes this assumption, this assessment that those who, who love God, follow God, have nothing to do with those who are on a different side, a different, you know, the out group, the thems. We have nothing to do with them. Now watch what Jesus does. Jesus is gonna come in and he's gonna correct his thinking. And it's so awesome how he does it. Check this out, verse 40. Jesus answered him. I, I love that, by the way. Jesus answered him. He didn't ask any questions, right? He, he thought this to himself. And yet Jesus is like, yeah, I'll answer that thought you just had there real quick, right? <laughs> Only Jesus can do this kind of stuff. Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something I want to tell you. So Simon is the name of the Pharisee we find out. Simon, I got something I want to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. He said. Um, Now, I don't know why, but I thought this was so interesting. I was doing some study this past week, and I was looking at this in different translations of the Bible. And for some reason, the King James Version, I just thought it was so interesting the way that it was put, this little transaction in verse 40, this little interaction. So let me just show it to you real quick. Um, This is the King James Version. You want to throw that up on the screen real quick? Um, In the King James, in verse 40, he says, And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. (laughs) I don't know why I thought that's awesome. No one talks like that. Then watch what Simon says. And he saith, Master, say on. (laughs) I just, I really think we should start talking like this from now on. I just want to go to my kids, say, children, I have something I want to say. I have somewhat to say unto thee. And I want my children to say, Father, say on. (laughs) Speak forth. I don't know why I thought that was awesome. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's great. So anyway, Jesus is like, he's like, uh, he's like, Simon, I need to tell you something about what you were just thinking. And Simon's like, okay, what is it? And then Jesus launches into a mini parable, a little story, verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of them both. Now, which one will love him more, right? Jesus gives a real quick parable. In fact, this parable seems kind of similar to the one we read a couple weeks ago, right? Jesus says, once upon a time, there's two people. They both owed money to their master. One owed 500 denarii, which is 500 days wage. The other one owed 50 denarii, which is 50 days wage. Plain and simple, he says, the master forgave them both. Now, interesting, the word that's used there, forgive, forgive the debt, is the same word that we use for grace in the original language. And so Jesus says, once upon a time, there's two people. One owed 500, one owed 50, and the master showed him grace. The master bestowed grace onto both of them. And then he says, Simon, which one's gonna love the master more, you think, in your assessment? So Simon answers. Simon replied in verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, I suppose, Jesus says, you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus in verse 44 turns and he starts to make his point. Then he turned towards the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, to your house, You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. This woman from the time that I entered, that seems strange, right? You didn't give me a kiss, bro. (laughs) You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time that I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Now, what's it all about? What is all that about? That's so weird to us, right? He's like, you know, you didn't wash my feet when I came in here. You didn't give me a kiss, dude, right? You didn't put oil on my head. What's your deal? What's that all about? Well, what that's all about, once again, we're a culture removed. Uh, Back in this time, the Jewish people, in fact, even to this day, the Jewish people have a biblical mandate from the Old Testament that God has told his people that they are to be hospitable. That is to say, you you are to love those who are not like you. You are to serve those who are different than you. You are to invite the outsider in, right? That was a biblical mandate for a Jewish person. And back in this culture, it was customary that, that when someone came into your house, that you showed them hospitality. And what would you do to show them hospitality? Well, this was a normal thing. You would wash their feet. Like I said, feet were nasty, right? And they would walk around and they'd get dirty. So the first thing that you did as a host to show someone you loved them and you cared for them is you'd get down on your knees and you'd wash their feet for them, right? And Jesus says, Simon when I came in to your house you didn't even wash my feet this woman comes in this ain't even her house she comes in with her tears and she don't even have a towel she uses her hair she washes my feet you see he says Simon you didn't pour any oil on my head Back in this time, that was a normal thing to do. If you went to someone's house, one of the ways they would show hospitality to you is they would anoint you with oil. That was done mainly um, for, uh, for fragrant purposes. They didn't have deodorant in this time. And so the way you dealt with the body thing was you would, you would put on oil. He says, Simon, I came in here. You didn't give me any oil, not even any cheap oil. She comes in, this ain't even her house. She comes in and she adorns me with the most expensive perfume imaginable. He says, Simon, you didn't give me a kiss when I came in. You didn't kiss me. And so we're like, that's really weird. But back in this time, it wasn't. The way you would greet someone was with a holy kiss. It's the way you would do it, right? And, And think about like an Italian culture, right? You just kind of do the customary kiss. He's like, when I came in, you didn't kiss me. This woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I've walked in here. And I want you to notice what Jesus says. He says, here's why, here's why you didn't do that. Look at verse 47. This is so revealing. It says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now catch this next part. As her great love has shown. Her sins have been forgiven as her love has shown us. And then he concludes, but whoever has been, for, he says, um, yeah, as her great love has whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus concludes it. Now, that's amazing. Do you guys catch what Jesus just said there, by the way? Because this is awesome. Jesus said, Simon, her sins are forgiven, not because of the things that she has done for me, not because of her her amazing love to me, but instead, the reason she's showing me amazing love is because she understands how much her sins have been forgiven. She understands grace. She understands the grace that God has shown her, and as a result of that, she can't help herself. She wants to show extravagant hospitality to me as a result of that. And you see, he says, whoever's forgiven much is going to love much. Whoever's been forgiven a whole bunch is going to go out and they're going to show that same grace to other people is what he says. Then he says, whoever's forgiven little is going to love little. Now, let me tell you what he's not saying there, by the way, because this is really important. Some people look at that and say, oh, well, Simon was a good guy. He was a Pharisee, so he didn't need to be forgiven as much as she did. And so obviously, you know, she she was forgiven this much because she was a terrible person. Simon was forgiven this much because he was a pretty good person. That's not what Jesus is saying, What Jesus is saying is, Simon, your self-righteous pride causes you to think that you don't need my grace. And basically he says, you want to know why she was so loving, so extravagant in her hospitality? And do you want to know why, Simon, you're such a lousy host? It's like, you want to know why? He's like, here's the reason. The reason you're such a lousy host the reason you're so resistant towards me, the reason you're so apprehensive with me, the reason you're so prejudiced against her, the reason that you're so biased against her, he says, is because you don't understand grace. Because when you understand the grace of God in your life, one of the natural products that begins to happen is hospitality. Suddenly you start to view the thems different. All of a sudden outsiders look way different to you than they did before because grace floods in your life and it results in hospitality. One of the ways that you know, you know that you've experienced grace is you become devoted to hospitality. You begin to serve and to love the thems in the same way that Jesus did. Now. Some of you are like, hospitality, that's interesting. What exactly is hospitality? Well, let me give you a definition because I think all of us have a, have a vague notion of what hospitality is, but let's just level set. Right? So let me just give you a definition of what hospitality is. Probably the best place, I think, in Scripture where we have a clear definition of hospitality is in Hebrews chapter 13. And So let me just show you a couple quick verses. I think this adds a lot of clarity to the conversation. In Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says this. is keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. That's what it says. Now, there are two words that are used in, that, in those couple of verses that bring immense clarity to this idea of hospitality. Okay, the first word is the word that's used for this idea of keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Right, that's a Greek word that's used there, and it is the Greek word philadelphia. Right? So you think of the city of brotherly love, right, in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia? That's what it means. It means brotherly love. It is actually two Greek words that are smashed together. The first one is the word philo, which means befriending. Right? It's actually the same word for groomsmen. So this is like not just like being like a shallow friend. This is like a deep friendship with somebody. Right? So he says, I want you to show Philadelphia deep friendship to who? Adelphia, which I'm probably not pronouncing that the right way, but it means uh, family, brothers, and sisters. Right? In other words, what he's saying here, what Hebrews is saying is, you should love those who are like you. The us's should be devoted to loving each other. Right. But then, I want you to notice what happens. He says, show hospitality as well. And the word hospitality is related to the word Philadelphia, but it's a different word. It's the word phylloxonos. Okay. and phylloxonos comes from the same root. It is philo, which means befriending, groomsmen, right? But then the second part is xenos, which literally means alien, stranger, or outsider. And you see what Hebrews is saying here? Hebrews is saying the love of a Christian, the love of someone who, who follows Jesus Christ needs to be not just someone who loves their in-group, but also someone who loves their out-group, not just someone who loves us, but someone who also extends hospitality and befriends them, right? And, and this, by the way, is exactly what Jesus said in, in uh, Matthew chapter six, when he said, if you just love those who are like you, what makes you different than anybody else? And so then Jesus concludes, you should love people who are not like you. In fact, you should pray for your enemies. You should serve those who are different than you. You should care for the needs of those who are the outsiders, who are the aliens, and who are the strangers. Now, why, why would Jesus command us to do this? Why does he command us to this type of love? And I'll tell you why. The reason that Jesus commands us to this type of love, a hospitality type of love, is because that is the type of love that God has shown us. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever thought about it before, but the grace of God and what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ is the greatest act of hospitality that the universe has ever seen, by far. I just want you to think about it for a minute. What does the Bible say about you and I? The Bible says this about us. The Bible says that in our sin, we were strangers from God. It's the word it uses. We were alienated from God. The Bible even says in one place that in our thinking, we are enemies of God. You get it? We're the outsiders. We're the them. To God, we're the them, right? But Jesus Christ has come. He has served us and he has sacrificed uh, uh, on, on himself so that he could invite us in to become part of his family. What is that? It's hospitality, that's what that is. It's caring for the outsider. It's reaching out and initiating a relationship with those who are different than you. Let me just show you a few verses on this. Ephesians chapter two demonstrates it so well. Here's what Ephesians two says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, right, that is you were the out, you, you, were, the, you were the them, You've been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're now fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. What is that? What is that? It's hospitality. That's what that is. It's inviting the outsider in. It's serving and loving those who are not like you. That's what it is. Look at this, Colossians chapter 1 says this, you were once alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds, but now he has reconciled you through Christ. You see that? We were, we were enemies, we were outsiders, and God is the one who invited us in and he showed what What grace demonstrates for us is a different way of thinking. It's no longer us versus them. When you begin to experience grace, what changes is we start to model ourselves after Jesus and now becomes us serving them because that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? Think about it, man. When Jesus was was in the upper room and he was getting ready to be crucified the night before and he was with his disciples, you guys remember what the disciples were doing? They were having an argument and they were having an argument over who was gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're like, who's gonna be the best of us? Who's gonna be the greatest of us? And while they're having this argument, you know what Jesus does? Bends down, starts washing their feet. What's that all about? It's us serving God. Them. Jesus served us. On the cross, when Jesus died, he prayed for us. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? And, and this was all out of a heart of hospitality. He's inviting the outsider in, and he has called us to this as well. And you see, here's the reality. When, when, when we've experienced grace, and we've been transformed by grace, when we see the outsider, we don't just see the outsider, we see us. Because we remember that that was me. I was the one who was far away, I was the one who was distant, I was the one who was estranged from God, and God was the one who initiated to me, and he's the one who brought me in. And so when I show hospitality to someone, I'm actually an outpour of the love that God has for me. I like the way John Piper put it. He put it this way, a really fantastic quote. He says, when we practice hospitality, here's what happens. We experience the refreshing joy of becoming conduits of God's hospitality, rather than being, check this out, I love this, self-decaying cul-de-sacs. The joy of receiving God's hospitality decays and dies if it doesn't flourish in our own hospitality to others. Or here's another way to put it, Piper says. When we practice hospitality, we experience the thrill of feeling God's power conquer our fears and our stinginess and all of the psychological gravity of our self-centeredness. And there are few joys, if any, greater than the joy of experiencing the liberating power of God's hospitality, making us a new and radically different kind of people who love to reflect the glory of his grace as we extend it to others in all kinds of hospitality. So you see what Piper's saying? He says, man, when we show hospitality, we become conduits of the grace that God has showed us we show hospitality, we are reflecting the very nature of the grace of God. And so you guys, when, we, when you embrace grace, it changes the way that you view the thems. It just changes it. And it empowers you to think differently. And so practically speaking, at your workplace, right, that, that person who, who no one talks to because they're, they're arrogant or annoying or, or that, that woman who no one deals with but they always talk about behind her back because of her lifestyle, that person, grace teaches me. That I can span the office space and develop a relationship with her and befriend her because Jesus Christ spanned the universe to befriend me, to invite me in. It teaches me that I can can span the construction site, whatever your workplace is, to, to interact with that person who is far off, who is different than me, that thinks different than me that's part of that out group who believes different than I do, has a different political opinion, I can reach out and befriend that person because Jesus Christ reached out to his enemies and he loved us and initiated a relationship with us. The gospel of grace teaches us that. It teaches us that I can span my neighborhood. I can go across my, parking, my, my, my driveway, I can go across the street, and I can initiate a friendship with my neighbor. The the, the neighbor who annoys me to to no end, whose dogs, for crying out loud, would you just put your dogs in the house, right? It's getting late and the kids are trying to sleep. That neighbor, right? I can go to that neighbor and I can develop a relationship and invite them in and say, hey, you want to come over to my house for dinner? And I can do that because Jesus Christ has put aside his interest and he has come to develop a relationship with us. Listen, if you're a middle, middle school student or you're a high school student or you're an elementary school student, in the cafeteria room, when there's that kid that's off in the corner eating by themselves, you know what I'm talking about? The One that eats glue and it's kind of stinky. I'm talking about the, the gospel tells me, the gospel of grace tells me that I can get up, I can risk my reputation and I can sit down next to that person to develop a relationship with them because grace tells me that I once was that stinky glue eating kid myself, right? And Jesus Christ spanned the room for us. He risked his reputation to develop a friendship and a relationship with us. It is a gospel of hospitality that he has showed us. It changes the way that we view the thems. It tells me I can serve someone even though they're not like me. I can love someone and I can befriend someone even if they believe different or they're of a different sexual orientation or whatever it might be. And, and I will, I'll risk my reputation because Jesus Christ risked his reputation for me. And you guys, not only is this personal, but my prayer is that we become a church that's defined by this, that we're so radically moved by the grace of God that one of the things that we're known for is our radical hospitality. That when someone comes in who's an outsider, that they feel welcome, like they're part of the family from day one, that someone's gonna accommodate to them, talk to them and love them, right? This needs to be part of our culture. When someone goes to life group for the first time and they do that awkward thing where they have to walk in, they don't know anyone. When someone comes to our church for the first time and walks in the doors, one of my prayers is that, man, they'd feel welcome from day one because when we do that, we're reflecting the grace of God. Some of us are like, yeah, but I'm not real good at starting conversations with people I don't know. Like, what am I going to talk about? It's awkward. It's weird. It's embarrassing. You know, I'm not sure what to do with my hands when I talk to someone I'm not, I haven't met before, Right. But here's the good news. Grace teaches us that you can embrace the awkwardness, right? That's our slogan around here anyway. You can embrace the awkwardness and you can be willing to embarrass yourself. You know why? Because Jesus Christ embarrassed himself for us so that we might be initiated and brought into his family. So we can do that for someone else as well. We, we have the ability with grace to, to rebel, against our prejudices, to rebel against our biases, to rebel against our insecurities and to rebel against our pride because Jesus Christ put himself aside and loved in a selfless way. And we can do the same thing. How do you know you've experienced grace? You know you've experienced grace when you become devoted to hospitality. God showed us hospitable love and we can do the same as well. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just wanna say thank you for your hospitable love to us. And the truth is, that when we were a far way off, you invited us in. And, uh, and Lord, you've eliminated the wall of hostility that was between us and you. And you developed a friendship, a relationship, and ultimately you invited us in to be your family. And so Lord, I pray that as we embrace grace, that it would result in the same type of love. Help us not to be self-decaying cul-de-sacs who are willing to accept your grace who are willing to accept your hospitality and are unwilling to show it. Uh, Father, the truth is that we all naturally gravitate towards a, an us versus them mentality. We naturally have an in-group bias that we, we just, we, we, we want to be, we, we, we identify with others and view ourselves as superior to others. And Father, what I see it in my own heart. I know that all of us see it in our hearts. The Lord, your gospel teaches us that we can serve those who are different than us, that we can pray for our enemies in the same way that you prayed for us when we were crucifying you on the cross. You said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The truth is, Jesus, that you've asked us to be hospitable because you're hospitable. You've asked us to love our enemies because you loved your enemies. And Father, when we, when we, when we allow the full weight of grace to come down in our lives, one of the results is hospitality. And so I pray that we be a people that are marked by that. Help us to embrace this, God. And we love you. We say thank you for the love that you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.